Hello. Welcome to Jane and Jesus, where my guests and I talk about all things Jane Austen, and I talk a little about Jesus. A lot of people don't know that Jane Austen was a serious Christian and that her novels have a lot to teach us about not only the Christian faith, but also general life wisdom, too. I'm your host, Karen Swallow Pryor. On this episode, I'm talking with Devaney Lozer, Regents Professor of English at Arizona State University. Not only is Professor Lozer one of today's leading Austin scholars, but she's also played roller derby as Stone Cold Jane Austen. We're going to be discussing Lydia Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. Here's our conversation. Professor Lozer, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, apart from Jane Austen, because you have a pretty interesting background in, of all things, uh, the roller derby world. Is that right? That is right. I'm one of those odd people, and I'm not the only one, but I'm one of those odd people whose life is pretty much saturated by Jane Austen in every single area. And one of those is roller derby, which is a sport I came to in middle age and have competed at and loved and I skate under the name Stone Cold Jane Austen. So that always gets Janeites going, especially if you know Worldwide Wrestling and Stone Cold Steve Austin. But I love that if I get called for you know a penalty, Stone Cold Jane Austen comes over through the intercom and everyone gets to hear that. That is so amazing. I feel like I want to say that this whole podcast was worth doing just to hear about this part of your life and <laughs> this part of Jane Austen's legacy. So thank you for that. You know, I did, uh, I watched a bit of a video interview that you did or, or podcast and in it, you talked about your mother giving you Pride and Prejudice when you were young. Could you share a little bit of that story? Yeah. So when I was probably about 13, my mother handed me a copy of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility Bound Together. I could still very much picture it. It's one of those modern library editions where both of them were together. She suggested books to me often, so this wasn't an unusual thing, but it didn't quite take with me this one. I love to read, but this one, it, it took me a couple times to get it. And she she was insistent. She kept trying to hand it to me. And maybe it was the third time I finally started to see things in it that were funny. And, you know, the language had proven challenging, but I got drawn in and just really excited about the characters. And it became a favorite book of mine. And it was only years later that I learned that my mother had never read the book herself. She just knew that it was a book that an educated girl should read. To me, that is an even more Austenian story. This was about my mother's aspirations for me as a learner and a thinker, and knowing that this was a book that an educated girl should read. That is, as you said, a very Austenian story. And I love it. My experience reading Jane Austen the first time in high school, Pride and Prejudice, was similar. I really, I just didn't get it. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand the language and didn't understand the satire. And I encounter a lot of readers today who haven't had the book unlocked for them simply because they haven't understood the humor in it. And once you see that, then the whole world opens up. I do want to talk to you a little bit about Jane Austen, not only as an author, but as a celebrity. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition? We know that she wasn't a huge celebrity in her lifetime, and she wasn't even that well-regarded shortly after. I mean, she wasn't the celebrity that she is now. So can you talk about how that happened and the difference between Austen 
the quiet, unknown writer and then her burst into celebritydom. Absolutely. And this is hard for me to be concise about. I mean, I've written this whole book, The Making of Jane Austen, where I talk about this for hundreds of pages. But I'll try (laughs) to give you a, a quick answer, which is that, you know, I think she was very much moderately successful and of a well-regarded novelist during her lifetime when she was publishing in the 18-teens. So I think we can overdo it when we say she was unknown, right? She was publishing as By a Lady in the first novel, and then in the ones after, referring back to herself as having written her previous novels. So she could be tracked. You could know by the end of her life that she had published these four novels. And with the exception of Mansfield Park, they were all well-reviewed. Emma was very well-reviewed, right, by what turns out to have been Sir Walter Scott in the Quarterly Review. So we can overdo it when we say she was, she was unknown. That's a little bit too weak a description. But then there was a period during the 1820s when her novels weren't reprinted. And so they were gaining a reputation among readers who either already owned copies and were sharing them or from copies that were in circulating libraries. And people started to, they had a, what we now call like a cult following, right? <laughs> and people started to copy their plots and she was known of, and she started to be referred to among the great women writers of the 18-teens in periodical uh, write-ups in the 1820s as Miss Austen. By the 1830s, she was included in a series called The Standard Novels. And then I think her canonical stature was really on its road. So it was a, a gradual movement to being regarded as an excellent novelist, and then from there to an icon, right? And that's a longer, more difficult story. Well, I want to get to a little bit of that later story in a minute, but I do know that you're doing a good deal of scholarship about some of these other female writers who were writing at the time who, you know, scholars study now, but who are less known. And I know my listeners not only love Jane Austen, but they love learning about writers that are new to them. So can you talk a little bit about some of these other writers, either during Austen's lifetime or those who came after and were kind of following her pattern and just introduce some of them briefly to our listeners? Yes. And I think people are surprised to learn that there were hundreds of women writers active at this time, right? That just blows the mind of a lot of us who've only heard of a handful or maybe only of Austen and Mary Shelley. But Austen herself in chapter five of Northanger Abbey refers to Frances Burney and Mariah Edgeworth, who were probably the two most famous, well-regarded novelists that we know Austen cared about referred to in her fiction. But I've just finished a book on two sister novelists called Jane and Anna Maria Porter, who were the more famous sisters in literary history before the Brontes, probably the most famous literary sisters before the Brontes. We know Austen knew of them. They had some really interesting confluences in terms of her life and her career and their lives and their careers. So I'm excited to bring this book, Sister Novelists, to people who love Austen, because I think it's going to blow people's minds to see the ways that being a celebrity in this period and being a celebrity author, there were other modes. Austin chose one path. Some of these other authors chose another. And could you give two or three of these titles that you would recommend to those who maybe know and love Austin but haven't read any of these other women novelists at the time? 
So Jane and Anna Mariah Porter wrote 26 books separately and together. So you could spend a good you know, year plus reading all of them. But The Scottish Chiefs is the one that Jane Porter is probably best known for from 1810. And if you like historical fiction, you like Outlander, or you've read Sir Walter Scott, and you're kind of into that part of what's going on in the period, you will, I think, very much enjoy The Scottish Chiefs. Long, but wonderful. The other novelists I mentioned, Edgeworth and Burney, most people who start with Bernie read her Evelina mm-hmm. from uh, yeah yeah right that's a that's an excellent one The Wanderer from 1814 is also amazing very long doesn't get read as often as it should for Edgeworth Belinda I think is the title that a lot of people start with although Castle Rackrent might be her better known you know we can talk all day about gothic novels from this period historical fiction from this period but to realize that Jane Austen wasn't even the most famous Jane from her lifetime, I think is also pretty amazing. I'm so thankful for you introducing some of those writers and titles. So skipping ahead to the 20th and 21st century, where Jane has become an icon, as you said earlier, what do you think about all of the variations, adaptations, spinoffs? Do they increase our understanding of Austin or distort it? I mean, what do you think is the relationship of those different versions of her work that are, many of them, so popular today? Do they help us see Austin better or worse? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. At first, in the, let's call it the 80s and the 90s, when I was in graduate school, I was very much a kind of fidelity reader of these things. And the closer they were to the originals, that meant the most to me. Like that was a sign of success. But I've really had a turnaround. And I think partly it's because of my students and Mm. seeing the way that my students get really excited about these retellings and how they breathe new life into the texts and make us see the originals differently. I don't think they do one thing. Some of them certainly do more of what I would call distorting. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes the distortions are quite provocative in a positive way. I don't judge them by how faithful they are anymore. I judge them by how much they make me think or how much I find them entertaining. And I think a lot of readers now are coming to these retellings and which have been going on, frankly, since the 1820s. So, you know, this is not even like a new phenomenon, right? We've thought that somehow this was new, but it's not. But I, I think going to these retellings with a spirit of fun and openness is probably a better move than going to them ready to be the reality police or the Jane Austen police. And I've, I've switched I've switched from one mode to the other completely myself now. I'm totally sympathetic to both of those modes. But speaking of sort of the distortions and the different views, let's talk about Lydia Bennett, the focus of this episode, at least ostensibly. I want to hear what you have to say about Lydia Bennett in the novel, the character of Lydia Bennett, and then sort of the portrayals of her in these adaptations, but not only that, but just even how we might see someone like Lydia Bennett differently, or perhaps not, today than readers of Austen's time would have seen her. I mean, do we see and understand Lydia Bennett the same way today as Austen would have in her world at that time? My sense is no, we don't see Lydia in the same way, because I think we don't understand how revolutionary and crucial it is that she is so little punished in that novel. (laughs) I think we don't understand, perhaps to the same degree, the things that she's done as being really beyond the pale. The words for that are in there, 
but we've lost a sense of what it means to be exposing yourself in a public place, right? The line yes. that's used, right? I mean, this this doesn't any longer, I think, have the same shock value to us. We live to expose ourselves today. <laughs> right, right. I, you know, in that sense, we're, we have some values that are more like Lydia's, perhaps, than we might want to admit. I think the fact that by the end of this novel, Lydia is, quote unquote, successfully married off. You know, there's one point where the town gossips talk about it would be more fun if they could describe her as having been shut up in a farmhouse somewhere, right? I mean, that that's the line that Austin gives us to imagine what the town hoped would happen to Lydia. She's really not punished even in that way. She's not cut off from society. She's not shut out. She might have a bit of a, a sheen of inappropriateness around her, but she's really brought back into the into the community. Partly, I mean, we could talk a lot about how that happens, but just fictionally, in fiction of this period, it's much more common for anyone who did what Lydia does in the novel to either die, be literally killed off by the end of the novel, right. or to be shunned. That Austin doesn't do this tells us a lot about how she sees the world either functioning in reality or the way the world should deal with people who step across the line of what's acceptable. Let's just take one step further with this question then, because all that you've just described about the way the novel treats Lydia and how she ends up really is revolutionary, to put one word on it. And you kind of started to talk about this, but let's let's press in a little further. Do you think Austin was trying to be revolutionary in that way? Because we know she was very neoclassical in her approach and conservative in many ways. And yet we have this pretty revolutionary ending. Do you think that it was accidental or do you think Austin might have been pressing more against her social world than we might think? Do you have any thoughts about that? I do think this is revolutionary. I would say that it is more forgiving is one mm. way you might put it. But I also think we could see in another, we can see in Mansfield Park, and I know we're talking about Lydia, <laughs> but we can see in a Mansfield Park what she does to an adulteress, right? As she would have been called then when she sends Mariah Rushworth off with Mrs. Norris and they are shunted aside, right? They're each other's punishment. But that's a married woman taking a step that is beyond the sacrament, right? <laughs> I think with Lydia, she's so foolish. And I, I think we're supposed to believe that she's manipulated. You know, she's created problems of her own doing, no question. But she was also lied to and seduced. Seduction is another word we could talk about historically here. Very crucial, very crucial and difficult word, even legally for this period. And I could get so in the weeds and so boring about that, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to stay out of the weeds just to say that I, I do think that her giving Lydia this chance to have a conventional life, even though we're not reformed, she's not reformed, right? We're told Lydia's Lydia still. They haven't <laughs> right. beaten the wild animal spirits out of her. She still has all those spirits. So I do think that's revolutionary. This character is being given a chance forward in the conventional world, despite her missteps. Missteps at the hands of a man who has taken advantage of her. And of course, we know that is an extremely timely issue. I mean, so many of the novels of the time, and even in the previous century and later in the century, do deal with the place and status of women who are manipulated and seduced and deceived in that way. And it's an important theme then, as it is now.
I really love what you said about forgiveness because that's an important point from a literary perspective, from a social perspective, and also on a podcast called Jane and Jesus, right? Where part of what we're doing is fleshing out just sort of the religious teachings and specifically the Christian teachings inherent in Jane Austen, who isn't necessarily always known for the devout Christianity that she believed in. But speaking of forgiveness and redemption, there are other issues, I think, that we can look at as readers of Austen and ask ourselves how we struggle with those questions. And last year, you made headlines worldwide for uncovering a connection between the Austen family and the anti-slavery movement. So how does this connection inform, enlighten, or change or not change our understanding of Austen and her life and her novels? What do we do with this kind of information? Right. And thank you, Karen, for bringing that up. I'm very proud of that work, which came out in May last year, 2021, in uh, the Times Literary Supplement in London, a, a weekly newspaper everyone should subscribe to. It's an amazing literary weekly. And it was not only describing the thing that made headlines, which was that Henry Austin, one of Jane's favorite brothers, attended as a delegate an anti-slavery convention in 1840, something that hadn't previously been noticed. But what the article in the TLS did was followed the thing that has been better known, which was that Jane Austen's father had a connection to an Antiguan, what was called in the time West Indies, the West, a West Indian plantation owner. And to look at that connection, that family connection, and to trace that from 1760 up to 1840. So I think the Austin family both had connections we would now say are problematic connections right. to slavery and the slave trade and the economics of that institution. But by the Victorian period, at least some members of her family had moved to a very much more politically opposite position. And I think that's very important to trace. And I was getting very frustrated and still am often frustrated at not telling the complete story there. It's wonderful that we can finally say somebody in Jane Austen's family was politically involved, <laughs> not just mm -hmm. her brothers who were naval officers and policing the slave trade after 1807, that was part of their jobs, but somebody who was taking a public stand against the horrifying institution of slavery. You might say a little too little, a little too late. I can understand people who say that, but it gives us some insight into a changing family viewpoint toward a part of history that we are unfortunately still very much coming to terms with and trying to learn about. And the, the Legacies of British Slavery is an amazing website that tries to chart the economics of this. And that's where you'll see Mr. Austin's name, Reverend George Austin's name. What I found fleshes out that story, adds a wrinkle to that story in ways that I hope will allow us to tell it with greater nuance. That's so important. I'm so grateful for your work in that area. I mean, these are the kinds of questions we have to ask about so many of the writers that we love from history, because as you said, our history, not just British history, not just American history, but all of our history is tightly bound to these great injustices and justice doesn't come overnight, but we can see that the long arc of the universe moves toward justice, as Martin Luther King Jr. said. And I'm glad that we can see that in Austin's family. And hopefully we can see it in our own histories. And I think reading works by writers like Austin helps us to, to ask those 
big questions, even as we just sort of delight in the foibles and follies of characters like Lydia, who are often just like us, too. Absolutely. And I, I think, of course, Austin had blind spots. And I don't, I don't think we can go to her novels without seeing them. I mean, the fact that they really deal with the middle classes and above, <laughs> you know, tells us that her orientation of the world was in a particular economic sphere. Absolutely. But within that sphere, I think she's very concerned about justice and injustice. And to me, that's one of the things that helps me return to the novel with fresh questions and to find new things to see there about, you know, what what I often say is uh, to my students is, to me, these novels teach us how to live a meaningful life in a world that's often deeply unfair. And I think Austin got that part. And I still find what's in those novels galvanizing from that perspective. Lydia is a fun character, <laughs> a disturbing and fun character, but she certainly is somebody you could look to to think about living a meaningful life in a world that's deeply unfair, even if no one wants to emulate her exactly. Everything that you said about Lydia is so insightful and really does help us to see how even just in subtle ways, Austin cared about justice and mercy, too. The scenes with the bonnets, the scene where she's talking about the lottery. She treats men like objects. I mean, she's just, uh, she's not good, right? I mean, she's the opposite of good. <laughs> right. But I think the other thing that the novel tries to show us is the, the ways that her choices have an impact on the people around her. And I think Austin's also amazing there, too. Right, right. Because that's true of all of us, right? We we live in a highly individualized world. And yet Austin reminds us how much everything that we do affects everyone around us, our families, our communities, our neighborhoods. And I think that's a something we're understanding better today. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I have one final question, and that is, what roller derby name would Lydia Bennett have? I think, Karen, we should go with High Animal Spirits, which is what the narrator calls Lydia. I think that would be a great roller derby name for her. That really captures Lydia perfectly. That's a good choice. <laughs> Lydia Bennett's world is a world of strict moral rules and rigid social expectations as well as harsh consequences for someone who doesn't adhere to those standards. Even so, Lydia's character is clearly depicted as foolish, reckless, and disobedient. And this is exactly why the ending Jane Austen gives Lydia in the novel, having her sins literally paid for and finding reconciliation with her family in the end, is, as Professor Lozer points out, revolutionary. Such a resolution reflects the kind of revolution that is at the heart of Jane Austen's Christian faith, a revolution that reflects the forgiveness and redemption of Jesus, who reconciles us to our Heavenly Father. Instead of poetic justice, Lydia Bennett receives mercy, something every one of us needs. Jane and Jesus is a Soul Shop original, hosted by me, Karen Swallow Pryor. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Robert Scaramuccia. For more Jane and Jesus content, subscribe to our newsletter at janeandjesus.substack.com and follow us on Twitter at Jane and Jesus. 
please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and family.